welcome to Artistic Accomplices, the podcast that's all about art, creativity, and learning. We all could use a little creative nudge every now and then that will prod us, encourage us, and give us a shot of inspiration. Artistic Accomplices is the podcast that gives you small doses of motivation and creative encouragement as you make, create, play, and live. I'm your host, Eric Scott, and I am going to share my thoughts on art, creativity, and learning, and occasionally I will interview artists, writers, educators, and much, much more. Just like the gym buddy that motivates you to hit the gym on a regular basis, Artistic Accomplices is that little voice in your ear telling you to hit the studio or to pull out the paints or to pick up the pen. So let's dive into today's episode. All right, I'm excited today. I've got my very first artistic accomplice interview, uh, and I couldn't think of anybody better than my original artistic accomplice, my buddy, my partner in crime, David Modler. So thank you, David, for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Eric. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so if you don't know, Dave and I have known each other for... 20 years now, 1998 is probably when we first met. Um, and I asked him to join me today to sort of share some ideas since he was my original artistic accomplice, uh, really a mentor to me. Um, I wanted him to kind of share some of his ideas with you. Got any, you want to say anything before we get started? I'm just uh, excited to talk to you about this. This is something that we've we talk about all the time, something we've talked about doing, actually sitting down and recording some of the things that we've, we've discussed. So it's, it's cool that you're, you're finding a place and a platform to record some of this dialogue. It seems like we drive places and have these dialogues <laughs> all the time. So it's be fun to start having an archive. Yeah, th that idea of uh, driving, I remember so <clears> many <throat> times that we've, we've talked like, oh, we should record ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And I think part of that is that that notion of, uh, you know, you come up with a lot of good ideas when you're just sort of bantering back sure. and forth. So I kind of envision, you know, our interview as more of that kind mm -hmm. of sort of a, a conversation. So mm -hmm. um, anyway, well, let's go ahead and dive into sure. it. Uh, so one of the things that really impressed me when we first met was that you were an art educator, but then you were also an artist. I mean, when I first met you and saw that that little visual journal that you had, and I saw you at an art opening, met you officially at, at an art opening, you were an artist, and and you had an artistic practice along with being an art educator. Because when you're an art educator, when when you're a teacher, it's hard to find the time to make your art. Um, so I wanted to ask you to kind of share your artistic journey, your creative journey. How did you? get into all of this mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, how far back do you want to go uh, as um, far back as you want well I mean I can think of being in high school and I was a freshman and I signed up to be in the band and this I, this is going way back so going go, going to be in the band and then got the notice in the mail of course this is all before cell phones and computers and all of that so I get the notice in the mail that that I did not get into the band class and that I was going to have to sign up for another class on the first day of school. So I went into school the first day, went to the office, and the only thing that was really interesting to me or really even available was an Art One class. So I went and I signed up for Art One. Um, in that class, I had a teacher, his name was uh, Ron Zaldivar, and I'm thinking at that time he was in his probably like 10th or 12th year teaching somewhere in there. Um, but he had went to Maryland Institute College of Art, so he was a, a watercolor painter, illustrator, and would be working on stuff in the classroom when we were working on things uh, for our art lessons. And I just remember him, when we had like a parent-teacher night, him telling my parents with me sitting right there that he thought that there was something really there, something special about what I was doing, and that it was he'd encouraged me to, to continue it. And, I th and probably for me, um, that might have been the first time somebody said that actually said that hey you're really good at this other than baseball or basketball or something 
and you should do more of this. So I just kept taking art classes in high school. And by the time I was a senior, uh, they had to open up a section of, of like an art four and then like a senior seminar course. They had opened up a course they hadn't taught in 20 some years because there was myself and maybe two other seniors that wanted to take more art, but there was nothing being offered mm-hmm. so they had to add a class. So we were in that class and it was really just sort of an independent study kind of thing. And I think that was really when things sort of started for me. I won a couple competitions, not that I think that those are all that important, but just the recognition maybe that, okay, maybe I am pretty good at this. And so then it came time to go to college and uh, was looking at Maryland Institute, of course, and was looking at Towson, which was public school. And it just ended up being where, what what was just gonna be a better cost benefit really in the end and scholarship money and opportunities and things like that. And when I visited both of the schools, I really didn't see maybe there was a big difference and I just didn't notice it, but it seemed like, it seemed like the spaces were similar and I didn't think, I didn't see how it was worth what you would have to pay. Um, But wouldn't probably wouldn't have been able to go there anyway because of the money. So I uh, went to Towson and I was, maybe halfway through my degree when I noticed a, an article was posted on a bulletin board in the hallway for the art ed department and it all it said was art teachers get jobs and I'm walking down the hall probably my second semester of my sophomore year and I see that sign and I, just, I know it stopped me in my tracks because I sat there and thought to myself huh yeah I'm gonna have this art degree in two years it'd be nice to be able to get a job when I finish this art degree. So I went over and I read the article and basically what it consisted of was that Baltimore County Public Schools had had stopped providing art art classes, I think for elementary school, I I believe was the grade level, and then it had been vacant for several years and they finally had the funding and they were getting teachers, hiring teachers to fill all these vacancies. So they were hiring a whole lot of teachers all at one time. And, and so I read it and, and it just kind of dawned on me. I'm like, well, maybe that's what I should do because then finished my degree and I knew I could get a job. So I went and I talked to the art ed coordinator that was Dr. Jean Bates. And she said, well, here's a class you can take. Take this art ed class. It'll count for your program no matter whether you stay in art ed or stay in studio. It'll still count for something. So I took it and found out that I actually enjoyed it that it was actually kind of fun to go out and work with kids and and make stuff and um so i stuck with it and she she thought i was good at it too and again another person saying that i was actually good at something was was great (laughs) so finished finished my degree there um and my first job uh was in loudon county virginia um i'd applied for probably six different positions when i finished school and that was the one that came through so i ended up in loudon county taught there for for five years, and I know for a fact that during those first five years, uh, my studio practice was very minimal. There really wasn't a lot that I was doing, and I think it's exactly what you're saying, Eric. It's you start teaching, and it's all consuming, and there's so much to do uh, in school and out of school that uh, it's very difficult to maintain a studio practice. And being younger, probably as well, maybe not as um, attached to my studio practice, coming straight out of a undergraduate art ed program, it was probably easier for that to get put aside for, for, for a while. Um, I still made things, I still did drawings, I still had a sketchbook, I still painted, um, but not to the degree or to the um, quantity that I, I had yeah. done in the past. And uh, it was probably not until I went back, I went back to get my master's in art education in 95, 96 at Towson and I was able to take a year away from teaching to go back to school. Um, I was on a TA, so I just worked for the art ed and art history department, had a studio and could just make work. And I think it was uh, at that point that I realized that I had been depriving myself of something for the last five years. And I was really starting to realize what that was. I was doing these large four by four foot and even even larger drawings. Uh, and did probably did 60 drawings in a year, mm-hmm. which were just crazy. Um, but just realized that this was something that I had stopped doing. I don't know why I'd stopped. Uh, I guess I could blame teaching, but I don't know <laughs> if that was the, the real reason. 
but I, but I made it a promise to myself that after I finished that degree, I was going to go back to the classroom, but I was not going to allow that disconnect yeah. to happen to yeah. me again. Now, you were talking about in um, graduate school that you started doing these large-scale drawings, mm-hmm. but in, in, your, uh, in your undergraduate degree, though, uh, I know as an art education major, you have to take all these different classes, you know, drawing and mm-hmm. painting and sculpture mm-hmm. and ceramics, um, but... Wasn't ceramics kind of like your concentration or yeah. your... Yeah, so they didn't have, like where I work now at Shepherd, they have my students that are art ed students, they actually uh, can take a kind of a core. They can take yeah. 15 hours in one specific studio area and we can call it a concentration. Uh, but back when I was at Towson, there was no such track like that. It was, there's just this list of stuff and you can pick, here's all these different categories and you had to pick a class out of all these different categories, two or three classes, whatever. So um, you took a wide variety of things yeah. and a wide variety of disciplines. And But what I found was I uh, took a ceramics class that was in the crafts area. I was like, I think it would have been fibers or metal or maybe it was fibers, jewelry and ceramics. Yeah. And so I took ceramics uh, because I had never really done it before. I'd done some clay work, but very minimal. Um, and on the first project they did, I got a D, and <laughs> I told the professor right. Oh, you critique, didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't. Uh, before you were ha- having people telling you how you know how you were good at these yeah, things, and yeah. now, yeah, now you're not so good at yeah. it. Well, part of it too, it's with with, with clay and building large clay forms uh, with uh, coil building methods. You have to allow dry time for yeah. certain areas in order for the vessel to to increase in size and. Um, even though the professor had been telling us this the whole time, of course, I was a freshman and I procrastinated and I didn't do it when I was supposed to. And I came in thinking I could do it a couple of days before it was due. And of course, he could tell that that's exactly <laughs> what I had done. And so um, I told him right then and there, I said, I don't, I said, I, I just can't accept the D. Um, I understand that it's worth a D. I said, but I'm going to get an A in this class if it kills me. And he just looked at me and he says, he says, I believe you're going to try. And I said, I'm, I promise you. And I ended up getting an A in that class. Um, but I think <laughs> what happened for me is I got on the wheel. Once I started doing wheel throwing work, I, that's something clicked. Yeah. And it, it really took off from there. And like I said, I'd, I'd never done that before. Yeah. So I think maybe the newness of it, uh, it was something I'd never tried. And all of a sudden, I was just into it. And so I took probably six classes in ceramics okay. when I was an undergrad. Anytime I could add three hours, as I, I just took another ceramics class because I was going to do the work anyway. Yeah. And that gave me a small studio space, which was sort of a privilege for upperclassmen. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. And so even though I don't technically have a concentration with my undergrad work, I kind of look at that and, and think, well, you know, 18 hours of work in one yeah. area out of a 120-hour degree, that's pretty substantial. Yeah, it's, so it's, that's more than what I had. I mean, mine, uh, I had all the the different courses, and I took, you know, two classes of sculpture and two classes of painting, yeah. but I never really focused Got on one, one thing. Um, yeah. So you're you're in grad school, you're doing these large-scale charcoal drawings. Charcoal drawings, yeah. They're uh, charcoal and pen and ink and water, uh, pen and ink washes. Um charcoal pencil, uh, chalk pastel, and just sort of working up these surfaces, whether it was on gesso uh, hardboard or on paper, and just working up these really large, uh, still life inspired drawings. So still the subject matter, um, really, I guess not subject matter, but the, 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 I guess the subject matter was the still life. I'm, I, th- I think that maybe the, the content of the work was something different, but yeah. Um, well, you were doing a lot of like blind contour. Yeah, a drawings. lot of blind you, contour. You process. weren't sitting there making no, these very no. detailed, realistic no. renderings of. No, a lot of blind of contour play, um, and just playing around with it. it. Ended up that uh, when I got towards the end of that year, I was meeting with my drawing advisor, and she was asking me what I was working on, and I was showing her these drawings, and I said, "Well, I'm also working on my thesis for my master's." And she says, oh, what are you going to do it on? I was like, well, I'm either going to do it on uh, graffiti and street art, um, or um, maybe I might do something about, I said, there's been this 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 new fad with com- using computers um, <laughs> to make art with them. 
And uh, she stopped me in, in mid-sentence and just pointed at my work. She says, your thesis is right here. This is what you need to write about. And it, it kind of kind of refocused me on the process of what I was doing. And I think that might have been a moment where I realized, yeah, how come my teaching and what I'm interested in researching in the practice of teaching, why is it not allowed to be related to my work? Yeah. Why, why, is, why, is there, why do I have this feeling that that has to be separate? And so from that, I just decided that's what I do. So my thesis was on contour drawing and it was to develop a coursework, a study for, for intermediate grades from like fourth grade to eighth grade and a series of lessons and things that, that a teacher could pick up and, yeah. and work with. And it would take students through a, a progression of skill and technique with looking at different artists for inspiration. And so so, so you're talking about like, you know, the still life being sort of the, the starting, starting yeah. off point. What inspired it? I mean, because... Well, I, I, I think it was because uh, I, I was in a drawing class my first semester, first two semesters I was in grad school in the summers. And it seemed like the two drawing classes I took in grad school, that's how they both started off. It was okay. just with blind contour drawings and these just crazy still lifes. So I just kind of kept playing around with those. And then I was doing a lot of reading and, and reading about different artists' approaches to drawing and different techniques and different things that they would do with their drawings. So up until that point, I think with the idea of rendering, it had never dawned on me that there was any point to rendering or drawing other than to make it look like the object itself. Okay. So if you're not making it naturalistic, then what are you drawing for? Yeah. And so maybe that was a point where I realized that the mark making um, and the drawing didn't have to, to produce a naturalistic image, but maybe that's a starting point for something else. Okay. And that that's truly maybe more where the content of the work is. Yeah. And so I uh, started to experiment with different things I was reading about, different ways of, of masking areas of a drawing, blocking things out, um, simplifying spaces, uh, overlaying uh, different perspectives or points of view together almost in a bit of a, a cubist kind of realm in that way, but uh, not really following hard and fast rules yeah. that had been laid down, just really experimenting and playing with the material and seeing what would happen. Yeah. And for me, it was uh, everything I had done up to that point had been 18 by 24. Mm -hmm. That maybe was the largest I'd worked. And so now all of a sudden, nothing I'm working on is smaller than four by four feet. Yeah. And it was, if I can stand in front of it as far as I can reach, that's how big I was going to yeah. make it. And then it just, that became not big enough and it had to get bigger. <laughs> and so it, it continued to move. So I had a drawing professor, um, an undergrad who tried to convince me to quit school when I was an undergrad. Um, but as a graduate student, came into my studio and was fascinated with the drawings I was doing. and. Um, his comment to me about the still life he says I, I i see that these are based on still life but there's nothing still about the image that's yeah. being produced because i was interested in activating that picture plane in some kind of way with, with the way that the work was and when i met you officially i mean mm -hmm. we had met each other uh previously probably in 1998 or uh, mm -hmm. early 99 yep. at some of uh, one of our you know staff staff development and yep. services computer art. <laughs> yeah computer art yep still remember it can't remember exactly when that was but then when i f officially met you it was at one of your mm -hmm. art openings and mm -hmm. i remember it was some of these large drawings yeah. that you were showing on exhibit but i think around that time also your art started changing from these large drawings and i think it was you know uh, because of the visual journal. So how mm -hmm. did your, because mm -hmm. now you don't do these large still life no, things. No, but I, I, I still have them. Yeah. And now I just take them and do some other stuff with them. <laughs> uh, so I'm trying to find a way to reintegrate them back into the work, make them make that history yeah. part of the new work. It uh, After a while of moving, probably five or six times, all these rolled up drawings moving up from <laughs> studio to studio after a while you start wondering why am i holding on to these yeah so i'm just starting to find ways to 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 reinstitute them in, in some kind of way so um yeah I, I learned about journals at a at a convention um so i don't I, I think maybe i was working in that little book prior to that convention or i i, I don't know I'm, I'm not sure exactly yeah. what the time frame was there um but uh, I think it was going to that convention and learning about visual journals, and it really got me into 
wanting to do something different with my work, something different with my sketchbook, um, something that I had not done before, something I had never been asked to do or told to do maybe. Yeah. That was more what it was. Thinking about a sketchbook being something that, you know, whatever the teacher tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and so I, when working in a visual journal, was whatever I wanted to do. So I was at this conference, went to this talk, uh, Renee Sindel and Kit Grauer, and it just changed my focus on what my art could be or how my art related to who I was as a teacher, who I could potentially be as a researcher, um, and then also who I am as an artist and, and what I can do and why am I relegating myself or why am I thinking I have to be uh, isolated to these certain things that I'm making for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, remember that, that workshop, I remember that talk, I remember leaving that conference and going home and finding my sketchbook in my closet, uh, going back to the hotel and working all night to put notes and things that I'd written down that day. Um, and I think that was the other little epiphany that occurred was I was sitting there working in a, in a yellow legal pad at this conference thinking, oh, well, this is the professional thing to do. You know, now you're <laughs> a teacher, you're a professional educator. This is what you do. This is what it looks like. And uh, I think their talk made me realize that that's not my, my natural learning environment that that's really somebody somebody told me to do that somebody taught me to to, to take notes that way or to, to or work maybe it wasn't way. somebody taught you that, that that's just what everyone else did right so I was just <laughs> that's what everybody else was doing so I guess that's that's the way it's done you know you had your little leather folder with your yep. with your pad in it and that's what everybody did a little holder for my pen <laughs> um, I think I remember get, I think I remember getting one of those whenever I uh uh, first started yeah, like teaching. A little portfolio thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what people did. So I, I immediately just kind of cast that aside and just started building stuff into the sketchbook that I think the date in the sketchbook was like 91. So I had started working in it eight years prior and had yeah. still wasn't even halfway through it. But I, what I know, it was lots of plans and sketches for things I wanted to make that I never maybe actually made. Yeah. Some of them were some murals that I worked on at some schools and some other small drawings that I had worked on. But I think it was really uh, that journal and the collaging and the cutting up and playing with the surface and experimenting with the materials that was something that I had not, had not done in that kind of way before. And I think that's really what started to change the focus. I became more interested in those layers, more interested in the way uh, disparate materials could, could come together and be forced to work together there, whether it's painted or drawn on or collaged or some scrap of metal or wood or whatever it was that there was no reason why these things couldn't be used together to make something. So you, you went from making these large scale sort of four by four foot drawings mm -hmm. and now your work actually is doesn't really have a limit. I mean, you make <laughs> yeah. you make you make pieces that are a certain size, but right. then all those pieces get assembled. Right at on site at right. whatever wherever you're you're doing it so when you're making your artwork now and actually we're sitting in your studio yeah. and I, I see a piece or pieces that you're working on now that are then going to be disassembled and, right. and recontextualized how did you get to that how did you go sure. i mean was that from like taking these still lives and sort of like i mean i could I like mean, you could tearing them look, apart yeah and, i mean you could kind of look back to that probably that whole idea of of deconstructing something um, just so that you can reconstruct it. I yeah. mean, you know, the, the, I think the drawing, the, uh, the blind contour process is a process of constructing surface. And so it's observational, it's direct observation. You're looking right at something intently, uh, but without the added, the added notion that I also have to make it look exactly like yeah. the object, uh, that you kind of cast that rule aside and just allow yourself to make the mark. Yeah. And I think when you, when you start to do that, something different with my work started to happen. And it really was sort of just the initial drawings were really just an armature. And then the work happened on top of that, or it held it, that yeah. armature held it together. So that initial drawing was the construction somehow the subject matter got deconstructed as the process continued. And in the end, you have this larger drawing that's a reconstruction, a re-envisionment of whatever that thing was. So I think that that carries over to the work that I'm doing now in regards to, um, it, they're not 
I'm not working on singular pieces. I'm, I'm, I don't have canvases lined up and I'm working on individual paintings. I'm, I'm thinking more about um, spaces that I'm gonna encounter or spaces I'm gonna work in. So the, the process of the art making doesn't stop in the studio, it continues on in the gallery space. So it's, I, I call it site responsive because I can make everything here, box it up, take it someplace, and then figure out how to put it together. Um, and I enjoy that process of assembling it on site just as much as I, as I do assembling the work in, in the studio and then having that opportunity once it gets to that space, working with curators, working with gallery directors, potentially working with um, other artists uh, to sort of assemble and assimilate these spaces. I can remember several exhibits that I've had where um, curators have been asking me, well, how many pieces are you going to show? I'm like, well, I haven't been to the site yet, so I don't know how big it is. Well, I just need to have an idea like how the number of pieces that you want to put in it. And so then it became this whole kind of question and answer thing of, um, well, can you tell me what the dimensions of the gallery are? Can you send me a floor plan? And I, and I do know that one show, the director sent me the floor plan and said, well, it's 100. He says, I measured it out. It's 120 linear feet. So how many pieces do you think you'll bring? And I told him 120 linear feet worth. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got there and started putting the work together after that first day of working in the gallery, he says, now I get what you meant. Yeah. That it, you, you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, kind of qualify it or quantify it to those particular kinds of notions we have about what art is supposed yeah. to be. That it's this other thing, and that I think this other thingness of the work is what I really like. And and I'll put on the the website on the uh, episode okay. uh, page some images. Sure. So I, I know some of our listeners are probably trying to envision mm -hmm. what this is. So I'll put up some. Uh, images mm -hmm. for that but i think i think the even looking at the work that's on the wall it's, it's a, the drawing the initial drawing it, it's still there that initial armature and, and i think it's just i i uh i moved away from the need for the the tangible object yeah. um, as the the armature and just kind of came across this other template that could be manipulated and played with and um, with this Murray patterning and it's like I can just it's infinite what, what, what can be done with it yeah so what Dave's talking about is he uh, uses this pattern that he originally found in security, security envelopes, envelopes. Yep. and uh, so if you open up a security envelope there's all these patterns of interference um, these Moray patterns that uh, these companies use to keep your your mail secure so that people can't see through it so um, again, I'll, I'll throw up some images that show that. Sure. Um, so, yeah, we, we've kind of gotten into talking about like that process of yours of kind of uh, working um, in your studio and then taking it to this other space. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it does really challenge that notion because I think a lot of people think of artists as, oh, they make a painting or they make right. a series of paintings and they right. hang them on the wall and you, you move from one picture to another picture and mm -hmm. that's how you see the art and and yours is very different and mm -hmm. so and i think there are i think there are vignettes within the yeah. work there are spaces to stop and see the rectangle again to yeah. see the rectilinear outline of the canvas or the or the wood but it there's not a divide between that and the next piece it's it all kind of amalgams together and, and, and brings together. And I think that in some ways the journal um, is the visual journal is something that's been helpful in, in looking at that. Whereas thinking about sketchbooks, thinking about that as a planning space and with the idea that, well, I'll do these sketches in my sketchbook because I'm going to take these sketches and I'm going to, yeah. they're going to become these larger things. I'm just thinking some things out in my sketchbook. Yeah. Whereas my visual journal, can work that way but it tends not to yeah it tends just to be something that's being worked in as well and so it's uh it's part of that same process it's not separate from it it's not a, a preempt of the art making it's part of the art yeah. making and even in the installations the books are there they're in there for you to look at while you're seeing this other stuff yeah. and so when somebody is participating um in one of those installations it's they can see the books, they can see the work on the wall, they can see the relationship between the two. 
and that that there is a connection, maybe not a, a, a direct linear connection. There's something on a page, and there it is on the wall. But uh, content-wise, yeah. there's there's a way that that's assimilated and comes together. Well, and I think there's a lot of uh, ideas that flow sort of back and forth between mm -hmm. the journal and mm -hmm. the artwork. Um, a lot of similarities to the way materials are used. Mm -hmm. You know, you mm -hmm. do a lot of collage in, in both the journal and yep. the other artwork. Um, a lot of the, the lines, the images um, kind of uh, flow back and forth. Mm -hmm. One thing that I, I do notice more with your work now is that in your journal there's a lot of writing. Mm -hmm. But in the bigger work, there really isn't. Right. It's more about images and things. So mm -hmm. I, that's mm -hmm. been interesting to kind of kind mm -hmm. of see as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, so there but, used to be there used to be yeah. more text in the, in the larger work as well, um, and it may come back. Maybe it, it, that could be something that starts to transition back into that work. Yeah. But right now, it seems uh, it's it's moved to where I'll let the I'll let the book be a place. Yeah. For the note taking, maybe, and and the work on the wall, there might be some, might be some words, but a lot, a lot of it's just the imagery. All mm -hmm. right. So, um, talked a lot about your your artwork, your process, mm -hmm. your uh -huh. kind of creative journey, um, along this journey that you've made over these years. I mean, you've mentioned a few people that sound like they were mentors to mm -hmm. you, um, and since this podcast is called Artistic Accomplices. Uh, what role do you feel like art, artistic accomplices have had in your journey or in mm -hmm. your artwork? Well, I think it, I think you hit it on the head as far as I think there's different people along the way that serve different purposes at different times. Um, I can think back to that high, my high school art teacher, uh, Mr. Zaldivar. I can remember being in that senior art class in one one grading period getting a C in the class and basically that was him telling you like you're not doing enough <laughs> and so it was like the wake-up call like hold on a second I don't get C's in art and so that was he, he knew he didn't have to give me an F but he knew I wouldn't accept the C either <laughs> and so it, it was just sort of I'm not average I'm above average I can do better than this so I I know that that was sort of something I poked and prodded and I, and I know when I went to the university, I, I went back to my high school a couple of times. I think a lot of us do that. We go back and revisit those teachers that, that we really like to you know, keep, keep in touch with them. I still get Christmas cards from him. <laughs> um, but just to go back and uh, I would go back each semester when I, and just kind of stop in and see how things were going, especially once I had decided to go into art education. Um, and one of the things that he told me was like, you know, being a teacher, it's been good for him. And he says, you'll never be, um, he says, well, I, what I can tell you is uh, you'll, you'll never be a rich man, but you'll always be a wealthy man. And so that, <laughs> that kind of has always stuck with me, uh, how we define that. And, yeah. and, I, and I think that he would basically what he was saying was that the, the, what you'll feel wealthy about um, isn't going to be measured in dollars and cents uh, from, from being in this profession. So I would say he was one. And then while I was in high school, I met another um, art educator Barry Shock, and I did some work with him when I was in high school and then later when I was at the university um, he came into my art ed classes and did mock interviews things like that so I sort of reconnected with him and then um, when I was student teaching I student taught in Howard County Maryland and he was the art supervisor in that county so I kind of reconnected with him again yeah. and then uh, later on in my career when I was uh, going to the national conventions, National Art Education Association conventions, kind of ran into him again <laughs> and sort of reintroduced myself. And after maybe two or three years of reintroducing myself, it stuck. Yeah. And he, he saw that I was that I was a, a viable participant, not just like I just show up every once in a while, I'm like yeah. always there. And then he's actually invited, well, invited you and I to do some talks with some of his classes at MICA. And I still I still have conversations with him. Um, so I, I would say that there, there was a mentorship um, from him as well with different aspects of what, of what this job is. Um, and then I would say uh, after getting out of college, it's like I had, I had friends, but not a lot of friends that were also artists. Um, I did have a, 
I worked at a camp when I first started teaching, and I met uh, Graham Hackett. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, kind of like a little brother, in a way, a little brother I never had, and I guess I was the older brother he never had. And we've remained friends all these years. And I, and I think, in a way, he and I have been artistic accomplices for each other in different kinds of ways that maybe we didn't realize. Yeah. And maybe we just didn't, it was one of those things where, we knew there was a connection there, but we didn't have a title for yeah. it. And I think it wasn't until later I figured it out. Well, and it's like, um, I mean, were you like sitting down and making artwork with him or sometimes. was it more? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes we would paint. Um, actually, his uh, his guardian hired me to give him painting lessons. Oh, okay. And we would just kind of hang out and paint and, and do things. Um, and then it just kind of became a point after a certain point. It was like, you know, I don't need any money. Let's just hang yeah. out. Um, and do some work and so we, we would paint we do other projects together through the YMCA um, and then probably not until I met you uh, I mean I think my work was still pretty isolated as far as just doing my work on my own and I think it was when you and I met and we started uh, hanging out and sharing journals and really sitting down and looking at what, what yeah. each other were doing um, and then both uh, participating in, in conference work and in realizing like, oh, it could be fun to present together. Yeah. So just that idea of, of having a, a, a co-researcher, another artist to work with, um, another teacher to bounce ideas off of. At one point, we were both teaching the same grade level. Yeah. So we were bouncing ideas off each other about stuff to do. So all of that. And we even taught together with yeah. some of the Saturday classes and um, so I think that that really became the first time where, oh, this is sort of like this person. And even for you and I, when we go to conference, oh, there's the journal guys. Yeah. And sort of like people know who we are because of the work that we've done. And I, and I, would, and I think early on, uh, maybe in those first couple of years, there was a point where I think both of us kind of felt, well, I do more than just journals. <laughs> I'm not just the, the journal, journal guy. guy. Yeah. And so I think both of us kind of pushed back against it a little bit, trying to do other things. But I think we've both come to the point where you know, I, I, I can own that. I, <laughs> I am a journal guy, and um, it's all right if that's what you want to call yeah. me. And, um, and, and I just realized that that's just a facet yeah. of, of my identity, of who I am as a teacher, as, a, as an art maker, um, even with the research I do, yeah. using this as a platform. Well, I find, um, it, in I find it interesting that um, now we have a journal posse, as some people... Yeah. Uh, have have come to call and, and hopefully some of those people are are listening to that mm -hmm. um, but I, I know that this idea of the visual journal is something that we didn't invent but it's no. something that we have have definitely um, perpetuated and shared and and things like that mm -hmm. but uh, I think early on we both saw that uh, a lot of the people who were sort of talking about the visual journal early on you know 10 15 years ago um, a lot of the conversation, even 20 years ago, a lot of the conversation was directed in one particular direction. Yeah. You know, it had to be a certain way. You had to do certain kinds of things. And I think from the very beginning, we always sort of situated ourselves in the spot of I can do whatever I yeah. want. It's like I make, I'm the maker of this book. It, I can do whatever yeah. I want to it. And whatever I choose to do or not to do doesn't mean that it's not what I say yeah. it is. You know, I'm not going to let someone else define it for me. And kind of going back to the, this journal posse, I think one of the reasons that that has become a thing now and that we have a lot of people that we associate, uh, mostly art educators at some of the conferences that we do and conventions, um, but I, I think that's come about because of a collaborative project that I think has the roots in the big journal, but then yeah. has kind of taken on a life of its own. And I'm talking about... Well, you probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, but for our <clears throat> listeners, it's uh, it's something that is called the Tetrad Project, uh, Draw and Play Here. And uh, I'll put the website uh, with the show notes. But um, there, this project uh, is, is a very collaborative thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so why don't you talk a sure. little bit about that and, and sure. what part collaboration yeah. and these artistic accomplices certainly, play. Certainly. So I think that... It all goes back to you and me, and um, I was working in North Carolina and was uh, doing research at NCAT, National, or the North Carolina Center for Advancement of Teaching, and 
in doing that research, looking at journals, I ended up talking with one of the program directors who asked me if I would want to develop a class. And so that like opened the door for us to really think about, well, what would we do if we yeah. could have a whole week to make a workshop seminar? What would that look like? And so NCAT gave us that space and time to, to do that and develop that. And a program director who understood the format, that adult learning model and that format that needed to be sort of part of how we were doing this. So I think we were, we were developing that idea of the collaborative piece at that point already. Um, but uh, I think learning too, like what, what is the best way yeah. to kind of put this together outside of what I might do with kids for one hour increments yeah. at a time. And so it was at one of those sessions where we met Sam, Sam Pack, and, um, and I think he instantly became you know, part of the crew um, at, at NCAT. It was, he know, was part of the original journal policy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, he just, it, probably coming from a lot of the same kinds of spaces we were coming from as far as just needing time to work yeah. as an art teacher. And so that, that gave him a place to do that and working in the journals. And it was at that session with Sam that we decided we would do a round robin and that so there's maybe 20 some people that decided they wanted to be part of it. So everybody, the whole idea was like, everybody had everybody's address. You had the person who was in front of you in the circle and you just, you worked in a book for a month and you mailed it to that next yeah. person. So that went on for a couple of months, maybe a half a year. And then at some point books stopped arriving at my yeah. house and the whole process kind of got bogged down. So I don't know what happened. I've seen some of those people since then and nobody knows where the books are. <laughs> I just, I just figure somebody got overwhelmed and they're yeah. just like sitting on sitting at their house and they just never got to it. And well, and that, that's why I'd never participate. I didn't participate in that round Robin because I knew I would probably be the person that would cause the, 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 uh, the Robin to stop. Right. I would stop the process. So, yeah, that's so why I, I never really liked participating right. in those because I knew yeah. I would be the one. Well, we did that, and then I think we tried to do another one at a conference. I think the three of us were at the North Carolina Art Education Conference one year, and Sam and I tried to get another one started with yeah. some people, and then that one broke down too. And so uh, from that point, I'd gotten my job at Appalachian State, and I would have some student teachers working with Sam down in Greensboro, and it was one of the times I was down there, we just decided, well, why don't we just like trade a book together since all these other people are bugging out on yeah. us. Let's, why don't we just do one? So we started keeping an 11 by 14 book and we just kind of started setting up these, you know, kind of ridiculous processes. Like you have to sign in and sign out of the book and you can't, you can't hand it to the person that must go through the mail. <laughs> we were just making up all of these like sort of like systematic things that we wanted to do. And I think it was just because we just saw it as like another part of a process. Yeah. And it's like, you know, we want this to have some meaning and it, and it, and it to have some structure to it. Um, so we started doing that. And then at the same time, we both started trading books with other people. Yeah. And we didn't realize that we were also doing that. And I think it was, I was at his place and we realized that we both had other people we were doing this with. And in between there, I started a project in North Carolina. It was 100 journals for North Carolina. And so the, the idea was there would be a, one journal for every county in, mm -hmm. in the state. Um, so I started that project when I worked in North Carolina. And I think from that and those round robins and then Sam and I trading this big book, this idea was just we were just moving towards this. And, and there's other projects out there that have these kinds of notions. There's the sketchbook project in Brooklyn. Um, there is the Thousand Journals project, which, which was kind of like the, the grandfather of, of yeah. all of these um, for me. And so we just decided that we wanted to do something like that. How do we want to do it? So we um, decided that we would uh, get smaller books. We got two or four by six inch hardbound sketchbooks from the art store. We just kind of went and found a place where they were maybe three bucks a piece and bought as many as they yeah. had. And then we wrote a proposal and we went to Portland, Oregon to a conference and it was called Open Engagement. And it was uh, at um, Portland State University and it was part of um, this idea of art and social practice. So it all goes back to the notion of the surrealists and those guys in the early 20th century hanging out at the Cedar Bar or wherever they were in Paris and 
get into mischief. They're making drawings, they're trading them, the exquisite corpses, all the other kinds of things that they did uh, to collaborate and, and play with, with their artistic practice and not be so serious about everything. And I think for them, it was, of course, it was World War I that made them realize that you needed to have more of this in your life and you can't be so serious about everything. Um, and I think for me, it was just being a teacher and just the the minutiae of teaching and all of the stuff you got to do. It was like, I just needed something that was like something that I didn't have to think that hard about. There was It was just something I could do that was fun. Um, that wasn't just riding my bike. So um, we started, we went to this conference and we had 12 books each. So we had 24 journals total. And I'd worked in 12 of them, Sam had worked in 12 of them. We came up with a whole mission statement, uh, a mind map that we had created that sort of dictated a little bit of what this project was about. And then so at the conference, we were able to do a, a short uh, PowerPoint and talk about where all these ideas came from and then get people to take a book yeah. and participate. Um, so that was, nine, that was 2013. It's now five years late, four, six years later, I guess. In May, it'll be six years. Um, and I've probably got a book that I'm personally trading with with over 250 different people. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I have, it's expanded for me, but the project has now shifted too to where Sam and I don't necessarily do workshops to find more artistic accomplices for us. It's to make other people connect yeah. within the workshop. So people start a book in the workshop and then they trade with somebody in that workshop while they're there, we will trade with somebody only if there's an odd number. Yeah, one of us will one of us will 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 dive in and be and be part of it as well. So I think it was you and it was you know Graham to a degree, but I think you and me like hanging out on Fridays, working in our books, and really starting to kind of get ideas together. Um, then NCAT, and then you know writing our books, and then doing these presentations and workshops. I think all of that has been right there the whole way and then working with Sam um, with the the journal exchanges and then how that's really like blown up into these different different projects and now these installations these shows and these you know like kind of like almost like art happenings in a way that's that it's there's a display but there's also an activity involved so maybe it was um, getting together with one person was one thing, but how many, you know, I guess it's that notion of like, how much can one person know, but like how many different people can you really work with? Is there a yeah. limit? And I would say out of the 250 or more books that I trade, I know I don't see all of them yeah. all the time. I know some people send them more frequently. I'm sure there are some of those books that I started with somebody, maybe saw it come back to me one time and haven't seen it again. Yeah. Um, I've already had a couple of them come back where it was returned to sender. I don't know what <laughs> happened to the person. That, they give me a fake address or I don't know. Yeah. All right. So we could probably talk more and more and more. Yeah. Uh, this might be more but, than one episode. <laughs> well, and, and that's that that's fine. So I'm going to just sort of like wrap it up with sure. uh, one last question. Okay. Um, so this is all of this podcast is all about like being that voice in somebody's ear to, to really mm -hmm. get them uh, excited, uh, to inspire, to motivate. So if you had like one thing that you would want somebody, a listener to take away from this episode, like maybe just think about all the things that we were talking about, what would that, what would that be? What would be um, a takeaway <clears throat> or just a takeaway yeah, in general? Sure. Um, I, I think the takeaway is that um, I think of Picasso, I guess, you know, that, that idea that cre creativity exists, you know, it's out there. Inspiration is out there, um, but it, and it will find you if you're working. Yeah. And so if you stop working, don't be surprised if you don't feel creative. <laughs> and but if you are working, chances are like I, I think for me, it's like I'm always I feel like I'm always working. And there's never enough time to do all the stuff I want to do. Yeah. Whereas I do meet students that have trouble getting started on stuff. They don't know what they want to do. And I think it's because they've never been given a chance to just do, to really do what they want. Yeah. They've been in school and they've just been told what to do. 
uh, for so long that they don't really know what they what they would want to do. So they're and I know and I know that because that was me too. Yeah, it's like I was waiting for permission, and I think you just have to give yourself permission because nobody else is going to do that for you. You just have to do it. Um, so I, I think I would say that it's you know you, you got to keep working and you got to you got to feel. Um, open. It doesn't. You don't need to know what it is yet. And yeah. I think that my my process is is a lot that way. I'm making stuff. I don't know what it's going to be. Yet. <laughs> I, I'll figure that out later. Um, whereas I know some artists can't work that yeah. way. But I think yeah. that that's just a way my process has evolved towards. I, I I enjoy the journey. I enjoy the process of making the work. And I know there'll be outcomes. There'll be interesting places to stop eventually. And I'll get to that. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I feel the same way with my art. I really feel that making art is about discovering something. And I, I don't have an idea of what that is until I start making it. Mm-hmm. And then as the ideas sort of start to flow mm-hmm. and I, that's when that the meaning for me mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. And not every artist works that way. There right. are artists that sort of envision it. Sure. You know, and then then they set out to kind of recreate that vision yeah, and it's like i heard a jasper johns interview one time and that's what he kind of said it says you know sometimes it is i get up in the morning and i have this idea in my head of an image i want to make so i go to the studio i get the materials together and i make it and then there it is he says other days he says usually more of the time i go to the studio and i just start doing things and then something happens and i'm like oh that's what it is yeah. and i just know that that's the thing and and so i think that my process tends to work more in that direction I mean, I, I have plans or I have notions of what something, what I could see something being, but I, I don't know if it'll yeah. actually get there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a lot of artists do that. They have, they maybe have a, a notion, an idea, but then as you start making it, I, th- I think a lot of times things start mm-hmm. to change too. Yeah. And, I think and the, then paint, it goes, the painting starts to tell you what it needs to yeah. be more than what you can tell it to be yeah. sometimes. All right, David. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, like I said, I'm going to put a lot of his images and things like that in the show notes and any links and stuff like that. But I just wanted to have my good friend, my partner in crime, my artistic accomplice kind of be our first official guest here on the podcast. So uh, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. So this has been Artistic Accomplices. I'm Eric Scott. Join me in two weeks for our next episode.